Well, good morning, family. Welcome, welcome to the gathered believers. Welcome to the presence of the Lord with us. And like, man, wasn't that just an awesome song to sing together? Like, that was great. This I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. What greater thing for us to sing as a gathered body? Well, my name is Jameson. Most of you know me. I don't think we have any visitors this morning. Um, But welcome, welcome. So, um, you know, last week um, we ended uh, with Jonah being vomited out onto the shores of Nineveh. And we asked this question last week, are you willing to endure the uncomfortable to go where God wants you? Are you willing to endure the uncomfortable to go where God wants you? As we saw Jonah in the belly of the whale being moved towards Nineveh and vomited out on the shore. And this week, I'd just like to start today with a, with a different question that's somewhat connected to last week's question, and it's this. Are you willing to say the uncomfortable to accomplish God's plans for this city? Are you willing to say the uncomfortable to accomplish God's plans for this city? Now, when I was young, I was probably about 11 or or 12 or so, and my brothers and I, we were staying uh, at my grandmother's house for the afternoon. Now, my grandmother was a very wise woman. Uh, She was also a very crass woman, if you get my drift. And her favorite symbol was the elephant, which in African culture is the symbol for wisdom. She had elephants all over her home. She had elephant paintings. She had elephant carvings. She had elephant bookends. She had elephant rugs. And she even had this crown jewel of her collection was this beautiful porcelain and like jewel encrusted elephant that uh, sat on a table in the middle of her sitting room. Now, as typical boys, Uh, In an afternoon at Grandma's house, we were running around uh, being quite rambunctious, wrestling, and just moving all over the house, and we were told multiple times to stop. Like, we were told, stop, you're going to break something, but as typical boys, we we didn't listen, and at some point, um, and each of my brothers will, you know, say who did it, I just know it wasn't me who did it, Um, but one of us knocked Grandma's beautiful porcelain elephant off the glass table and it hit the floor, and the shatter throughout the house was audible. And you would have thought time stopped. Now, my grandmother was a large lady, so she didn't come running for nothing. But what we heard from her, her bedroom, which was in the back of the house, was, what in God's name was that? And I can't say the actual words <laughs> she said. There were some other more colorful words in there. And me and my brothers all stared at one another as time stopped. And we sort of had this sort of collective thought. We didn't say it, but the question that sort of hung in the air was, who's going to tell grandma the bad news? Who's going to go have this bad conversation with grandma? Now, here's our reality. Nobody likes to be the bearer of bad news. No one likes to be the bearer of bad news. We'd much rather be like the doctor who walks into the patient's room and says, hey, your baby looks healthy, ma'am. Or that says, hey, your test came back and and everything's clear. We don't like to be the doctor who comes in and says, ma'am, your baby's passed. Or the doctor who says, sir, you only have 40 days left to live. We don't like to be that guy. We love giving good news, but being the bearer of bad news is very far from the top of our list of priorities. And yet, like Jonah, 
God has placed each and every one of us on this earth to be the bearer of some particularly bad news. This is Jonah's task, and as we walk through our text today, we will see that this is our text also. And after being disciplined by God for his disobedience from running from God's plans, being thrown into the sea by God's sovereign providence, and spending three days in the belly of a fish, finally being vomited up on the shores of Nineveh, Jonah seems finally ready to undertake this task, this God-ordained task. If you would, turn with me to Jonah chapter 3. We'll be looking in verse 1. It says this, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message I tell you. So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Here's our first point for today. Gospel conversations aren't without offense. Gospel conversations aren't without offense. Offense. Let's take a note as we begin of the phrasing that Jonah uses here. Remember, this is Jonah's uh, firsthand account of what happened to him. These are Jonah's very words. And Jonah uses the term, the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord. And Jonah says three particular things about the word of the Lord. First, that the word of the Lord came to Jonah. The word of the Lord came to him. Secondly, that he was charged to speak the words that God told him to speak. So the word of the Lord came onto Jonah, and God charged him to speak the very words of God. And lastly, that Jonah went according to the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord comes onto Jonah. God charges him to speak those very words, and Jonah goes in the power of the word of the Lord. And all Christians like Jonah have received the clearly revealed word of God. We have received the Holy Bible, the inspired scriptures. But unlike Jonah, who had the privilege of, I don't know if it's the privilege or, the, or the, the, the fearful moment of hearing the actual voice of God, we have not received God's word audibly. Instead, God has preserved for us through the ages the Holy Bible that we might know who God is and that we might walk in light of who he is. Here's the thing. Christians are called to respond to who God is, Right? God gave us the Holy Bible. He gave us the word. The word has come upon us so that we would respond to what we know about God. God has revealed his will to us, and we should live with that will in mind. All Christians also have the same central message. What makes someone a Christian is what they believe about the central message of the Bible. That is the gospel the central message of the Christian faith, the truth that Jesus Christ was the sole begotten Son of God, that he was both man and God, that he lived a perfectly holy life and chose to die a death willingly to pay the price for those who had sinned against God, which is all people. And after three days, he rose again from the grave, conquering sin and conquering death, that all men and women who repent and believe that he is the Son of God and believes that he's paid for the sins of mankind may be forgiven for their trespasses before God, and they may have eternal life with God. This is the gospel. It's not a story conceived by man. It's not a nefarious tool to control the masses, as some would say, but it is a reality that has been given to us 
by God as a gift. And as those who follow God, as Christians, we are called to share this story, God's story. Not our version of God's story, but the story as he wrote it. We are to speak and confess about God, ourselves in our world, what God has said about these things. So just as Jonah was charged to speak the words that God gave him, so are we called to speak the words that God has given us, the words of Scripture. Like Jonah, all Christians walk in the power of God's will, not our own. That is, we are goers. We are those who should be going, who live and breathe and have their being according to God's word. Christians are called to go in the gospel's power where God directs us to go. And I would also add to do what God directs us to do. These are major tenets in these first just quick three verses. Now, I'd like you to take a minute and picture Jonah. Picture what we've known about Jonah so far, right? Jonah spent three days in the belly of a huge fish. He has just been vomited up onto the shores of Nineveh, and while the Lord sustained and protected him in the belly of that fish, there's nothing pretty about Jonah's appearance this day as he gets ready to walk into the city of Nineveh. There's a story about a sailor named James Bartley, whom many had called the modern-day Jonah, who was reportedly swallowed by a sperm whale while he was on a whaling expedition near the Falkland Islands. Now, he was reportedly knocked overboard and fell into the whale's mouth. Mr. Bartley is said to have spent 30 hours inside the whale before it was caught by another whaling vessel. And to that whaling vessel's surprise, as they began to butcher the whale, they opened it up, and there was Mr. Bartley alive inside the whale. Bartley was said to have his skin bleached almost completely white because of the gastric juices that were in the whale's intestines, and he had lost his sight. He'd gone blind because of being in that whale soup, I guess. Now, as I researched this story, I don't believe it's completely true, but it does give us an idea of what Jonah may look like, what he may have experienced. We're not told that Jonah left the belly of the huge fish unscathed, unchanged, or unharmed, only that he was set free by God to preach to the Ninevites a message of doom. Jonah has bad news. Let's continue in verse, end of verse 3, beginning of verse 4. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Three days' journey in breath, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's Journey. I'd like you to imagine Jonah walking into this great city, a city of hundreds of thousands of people, and Jonah's walking a day's breath into this city, and he, he just reeks of whale vomit. This is Jonah. He reeks of whale vomit. He probably has seaweed matted in his hair. His skin is perhaps a different color than when he went into the whale's stomach, and he's walking into the streets of this massive city. And after being crushed by the heavy hand of God, we see a broken, 
but usable Jonah fulfilling the call that God has on his life. Initially, Jonah was unwilling to do what God called him to do, but God's heavy hand was placed upon him and God broke him. Listen, God often breaks us before he uses us, does he not? God often breaks us before he uses us. And I watch some of your heads, you're like, yeah, preach it, Jameson. He does. Why does he do this? Well, I think there's many reasons. There's pride in our hearts. There's humility that needs to take root. There's disobedience that needs to be cast out. But, but I also think he does this so that something about us would be peculiar to the people we meet with. That like Jonah in the belly of the whale, we would be changed. Because here's the truth. A broken man has a story to tell. Am I right? A broken man has a story to tell. Something about a broken man catches the eye of those around him and gives him an opportunity to tell their story. The question is, what story will we tell? God uses broken people as walking billboards for his glory And it's often those that he uses most powerfully for his glory is those who have experienced the heavy hand of God most heavily. It's often the most broken that God uses. He bruises us, but he is often always faithful to mend us and bind us up. And so Jonah walks a day into the city, and I imagine as he does, we see this broken, dirty, matted, reeking man walking into the city as people's heads begin to turn and go, what happened to him? What's going on with this guy? As crowds begin to form around him, as he's walking throughout the day into the heart of Nineveh, they begin to follow him, and they're likely expecting Jonah to tell them, who he is, where he's from. They're likely expecting Jonah to tell him what happened to him, tell him his story, explain how he got into such a sorry state, explain how he lived to tell the tale from this horrifying experience. But Jonah is a changed man. Jonah has learned to do exactly what God commands. And so Jonah speaks the worst news the Ninevites have ever heard. Jonah speaks exactly what God tells him to say, and not a word less, and not a word more. The scripture says, and he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. 40 days. In just five words, the judgment of God has come upon the Ninevites. You know, I know often when I hear the gospel proclaimed, I'm left wanting. So often, we can be enticed to say what is ultimately easy to hear, to say the words that will not offend those who are listening But a common theme throughout Scripture, which we've seen displayed personally in Jonah's life time and time again, is that God's judgment always precedes God's forgiveness. God's judgment always precedes God's 
forgiveness. So often when, when pastors preach or we attempt to share the gospel with others, we strain hard to highlight the, the good parts of the gospel, right? We say God loves you. And God wants you to have a beautiful and personal relationship with him. God wants to fix your life. And these are all true statements. There's, there's no lies here, but we leave out the part that says, look, if you don't leave your wicked ways, if you don't turn from your sin and follow God, turn your life over to him, you'll be doomed for all eternity. Judgment, wrath, warning, justice, call it whatever you will. It's an essential part of the gospel story. And it always comes first. You know, something we tell our boys in our home is this, a half-truth is still a lie. A half-truth is still Alive. We say, oh, Jesus died for you and he wants to reunite you with the Father. He loved you so much and he just, he just wants to show you how much he loves you. But we don't say, look, the reason Jesus died is because you sinned. You and everyone else in the world. But Jesus took the penalty for our sins from God on himself and died so that you and I don't have to die an eternal death. We don't say no one has to pay that penalty. No one has to die that death because Jesus, as a gracious gift to us, he chose to do so so that you might repent and believe in him. So often we leave out half of the story. And I just have to ask, as I was thinking about this text this week, is the gospel you believe a half-truth? Is the gospel you believe a half-truth. We're not talking about the people we're talking to, but the gospel that's in our hearts. Is it a half-truth? Is, is, is the gospel that you embrace devoid of God's initial displeasure with you? Is it devoid of that? You know, I remember when I first came to the Lord, I heard a gospel that said, hey man, Jesus loves you, and he died so you could be with him. He wants to forgive you and for you to live forever with him. But no one told me, hey, Jesus died for your sins, Jameson. No one told me, hey, Jesus died because you helped ruin the world, young man. No, no one said that to me. No one told me that I needed forgiveness more than I needed my very next breath. It wasn't until much later in my walk with the church, I guess, that someone told me through a hard conversation, those sins that Jesus took on him, those were yours. Not everyone else's, but, but yours, Jameson. And, and I believe at that point I was truly, truly saved because up until that point, I didn't really believe that I needed Jesus to save me because I wasn't the problem. Everyone else was. The rest of the world was the problem, not Jameson. Listen, we must embrace the true gospel and sharing that gospel is hard, but gospel conversations aren't pretty, and you don't have to be either. You don't have to be either. What we must do is be faithful. You have to be faithful. Faithful to believe the true gospel, and faithful to speak the true gospel. Now hear me, that doesn't mean rude. It doesn't mean angry. It doesn't mean belligerent, right? It doesn't mean any of those things. It means faithful. 
to simply say what God has told us to say, no matter what the obstacle is. And so many of us face true obstacles. I know I do when I go to speak to someone about Jesus Christ. It's easy for me because when people ask me, hey, what do you do? Oh, I'm a pastor. Instant gateway. Super simple. And they either walk away or they're like, oh, tell me more. But we all face obstacles, whether it's fear or or failure or persecution. Maybe it's how you're dressed, you don't feel presentable, or maybe it's your speaking ability. Whatever the obstacle is, if Jonah's example shows us anything, it's that you could reek of whale vomit and still preach the gospel faithfully. (laughs) You could be the most disgusting human being Preach the gospel faithfully. So often we get caught up in thinking about the results of sharing the gospel. We think about what happens on the other side that we'll share it and maybe the person we're sharing it with will be mad at us or offended with us or they won't respond at all or maybe they won't talk to us anymore. But I want to ask you the question, what if nobody shared the clear gospel with Jameson? What if nobody shared the clear gospel with me? I'm not sure we'd have a convergent church. What we must do is let God be sovereign over the results of our gospel preaching. We must let God be sovereign over it, just as we've seen him be sovereign over every other thing in this story of Jonah. Our job is to just speak the clear truth in love. And love being an important key. Speak the clear truth in love, but it's God's job to convict and convince and save. We can't do any of those things. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. He convicts. He convinces. He saves. Let's take a look at Jonah's message of judgment. And our second point, gospel conversations are essential for gospel results. Gospel conversations are essential for gospel results. Verse 5 and the people of Nineveh believed God. So, so, so let's just stop there for a moment. That is the response of Jonah's five-word sermon. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered in sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. What we see, and this is phenomenal, what we see from the result of this five-word, very condemning sermon is nothing less than a wholesale, widespread revival of the entire city. Just five words. Everybody responds by mourning over their sins and despairing of them through fasting, and they cry out mightily to God. They don't eat and they don't drink because they know salvation is more important than their next meal. 
They even bring their livestock in from the fields. They cover them in sackcloth and ashes, and they cease all work. This entire city has a public shutdown, and we've experienced that, a shutdown to cry out for their common need for deliverance from their sins. Imagine that. What if Owasso shut down not because of a virus, and that's not political, that's just saying something that happened. What if it didn't shut down for a virus, but it shut down because of our common need for deliverance of God? Could you imagine that? That's our vision as a church, that we would see a day when the entire city collectively displays the kingdom of God. What if? The news of this judgment going out from Noah moves through the streets and the boroughs and the homes of Nineveh until it infiltrates the palace guards and the servants and the advisors and it works its way all the way up to the king himself. And one would expect a man of such immense power and such immense privilege. We would expect him to say, no, 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 no. I have the power here. I'm the king. I have the power. I have the authority. But here's where we see that God is not just all-powerful over the common laborer. He's not just powerful over the blue collar. He's also powerful over figureheads, state and national leaders as well. This king fears, utterly fears the judgment that is going to defall him from God's hand. And he takes off his royal robes. He takes off what signifies to him as a great and powerful and privileged man, and he puts on sackcloth. <laughs> yeah, sackcloth was the garb of slaves. And the interesting thing to me is that what the text says, it doesn't say that he put on sackcloth and then he went and sat back down on his throne. No, he didn't sit back down on the throne. He put on sackcloth and he sits on the ground. And he covers himself in ashes because the throne of Nineveh that once belonged to this great king is now the throne of God because of just five words. Just five faithful words. Convergent Church, do you believe that God can do that in the city of Owasso? Just five faithful words. And how does... Jonah's sermon gained such a response? Well, it's simple because the power of the preacher, the power of the Christian, isn't our ability to preach the gospel well. It's in the words of the gospel. That's where the power lies. It's, it's not because Jonah's presentation was eloquently practiced or put together. Like, he didn't have a PowerPoint. He just said what God told him to say because the power is in the message we preach, not in us. Not in us. Our power is in the gospel. And the same goes for you. It's not in your delivery. It's in the message. Paul said this much in Romans 1.16. He said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is the power. We, we so often long for revival. We have songs in this church and we sing about it to tell people that, that they need Christ, but we're unwilling to tell them, hey, brother, I love you, but, but you're dead in your trespasses. 
and you'd be wise to cry out to God for salvation. We're no different than Jonah. The clear gospel that God speaks through you, yes, yes, you, or speaks through perhaps your children as you discipline them and, and, and bring them up in the admonition of the Lord. The gospel that we preach could be the gospel that brings the vision of this church alive. Imagine that. Imagine be Xavier, it could be Izzy, that one day speaks the gospel to this city, and the vision of Convergent Church comes to life for some of your children. Yes, you, brother or sister, who trip over your words, who stammer and stutter, yes, you with clammy hands who are anxious, you who are trembling at the thought of speaking, God can and wants to use you to change the eternal landscape of this city. He wants to use you. You are part of God's plan for the future, for your neighbors and for your family and for your coworkers and for your children, even all the way up to the leaders of this city. Those of you who have friends who are in powerful positions, feel blessed. You have a great opportunity to share the gospel. Here's the thing, anyone can be used by God to spread the gospel, and no one is beyond its reach. God can use anyone, and he uses a stinky, broken Jonah to cause wholesale revival in Nineveh. Here's our last point for the morning. Gospel conversations are part of God's will. They are part of God's will. Verse 10 says this, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Listen, we know this, just like the city of Nineveh, the evil of those who do not trust Christ in our city comes up before God. That's what God said in the first chapter of the story. He said, the evil of Nineveh has come up before me. And we know, true, as much as we love this city, the evil of this city comes up before God. There's nothing that he does not see. He's not unaware of what's going on. He's omnipresent. He sees and knows all. And people in our city are every day, without knowing, heaping up God's wrath against them. And they have no idea. They're like the Ninevites up until this point. We're going on their way in violence and in evil and in theft and in all of these things. Imagine what would have happened to that city if God just let Noah go across the sea. Imagine what would have happened if God said, you know what? If Noah's not in the game, I'm not in the game either. Hundreds of thousands of people would have never had the opportunity to hear that God was angry with the way they lived their lives, and they would have never known that they needed to repent and trust in God. They would have been much like a child who, if they weren't told not to stick their hands into a flame, would do it. And they would suffer the consequences and the pain of that. Church, we must tell them. We must tell them so that they would repent in our city and that God would relent against his wrath towards the people of our city. And listen, here's the major point. This is what God wants to do. God wants to relent. God loves mercy. God loves showing compassion. 
And when we share the gospel, we're simply stepping into what God planned to do all along, which is relent as we share. Look at, look at Jonah's story. God ordained Jonah, even though he knew Jonah would run, he ordained the way the dice fell on the deck of the ship so that Jonah was called out. He ordained the moment that Jonah was thrown overboard. He ordained the fish that saved Jonah, and he ordained that Jonah would make it to Nineveh in seven days instead of 50 days. Yes, if Jonah would have walked to Nineveh, it would have taken him 50 days. God got him there in seven. Think of this. <laughs> seven days, baby. Seven days. God put him on a boat, threw him to a fish, and got him there in a week. It's because God's plans don't fail. And what God plans to do, he accomplishes. And every single person that we share the gospel with is a part of God's unfailing plan, and he's already planned the results, guys. He has already planned the results. You sharing the gospel with another human being does not change the future. Instead, we're stepping into what God already plans to do. Our preaching of the gospel is simply the key that unlocks the door, but we don't know what's on the other side until we do it. We have no idea what is on the other side of that door until we do it. The other side is up to God. God says this in Isaiah 55, 10, and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth fruit and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. When God's gospel goes out, it always has a purpose. It always accomplishes one of two things. It either condemns or converts. One of two things. It either condemns the sinner or converts the sinner into a Christian. And God is sovereign over that. It accomplishes exactly what God wants to do. Salvation belongs to the word. With just five words, Nineveh's judgment was spoken, but in those same five words, words, their salvation was unlocked. What will we do? Praise God, God relents. And some would say God changed his mind. No, God planned to relent the whole time. And through the power of his word, he accomplishes all he plans to do. No one likes to be the bearer of bad news. I don't like to be the bearer of bad news. But what we know is that the good news the good news that Jesus forgives those who repent and believe in him, full stop, no longer counts a single one of their transgressions against them, that good news that saves sinners is on the other side of the bad news. It's on the other side of the bad news. So I'd like to end today with some questions, some practical, some internal First, how can you make the gospel as clear and concise as possible? How can you speak the gospel as clearly and as quickly as possible? I know there's been so many times, probably more than I could possibly count, 
that I was sitting there speaking with a student or with a broken person or someone who needed the gospel, and I felt the Holy Spirit's prompting, and I maybe had a minute window, and I didn't take it. Hundreds, hundreds of people that I have personally not shared the gospel with, and that, that breaks my heart. How can we learn to share this great news as quickly and concisely as possible? How can we boil down the essential elements of the gospel so we can share it as easily? Think on that. Next question, who is one person you can share the gospel with this week? Who is one person? Just one. One person who needs to know the truth, that their transgressions separate them from God and that they need salvation and that God relents when they repent and believe. Who needs to know that truth? We've seen it in the story of Jonah. What if that one person is the person who helps spark the revival of the city of Owasso? What if it's that one person? Who can you share it with? And lastly, the question we began with, are you willing to say the uncomfortable to accomplish God's plans for this city? No one likes to be the bearer of bad news. But Convergent Church, we have bad news in one hand and good news in the other. May we be a church who opens both hands wide with the truth of a clear gospel so that God may do, as we sang this morning, that he may bring many, many, sons and daughters to glory. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, forgive us. Father, forgive me. Lord, we come to you now in the blood of Jesus Christ because we must. Lord, we must. For the blood of your Son is our advocate, cries out for us. And so, Lord, we cry out now, forgive us. Lord, forgive us. Lord, forgive me for the many times where I had the opportunity to share the gospel and I did not because of, because of fear and the other obstacles that stand in my way. Lord, forgive me for putting my plans before your plans. Forgive me for being like Jonah and running to the other side of the sea. When you, Lord, have opened the way for me to speak the gospel. Lord, forgive me for not trusting in the truth of your power. Lord, forgive me for not seeing that you ordain what is on the other side of my gospel proclamations, Lord, and that all you need from me is to be a faithful mouthpiece for you. Lord, help us to believe that. Lord, give us a bold faith a faith that believes that no matter our presentation, no matter how sloppy, no matter how hastily, Lord, you can use it. You use just five words to spark revival. Lord, what could you do in our city? Salvation is in your hands, Lord. Nothing is impossible for you. And so, Lord, may faith rise in Convergent Church that we would speak the clear gospel Lord, without thoughts of being purposely offensive, but as we look at each human that we encounter, that we would see that that is an eternal soul that will spend eternity somewhere. 
but for our spouses and for our children and for our coworkers and for our bosses and for all the people we come into contact with, that we would see that this person has an eternal destiny and they would either spend it with God in the joy of your presence without, without sin and without pain and without sadness and without loss, or they will spend it in the depths of hell removed from your presence. Lord, you have given us a daunting task, a task that we often feel unable to complete. So Lord, we beg that your Holy Spirit would rise up in us and that your Holy Spirit would go before us. That you would prepare the way for the revival that you desire. That Lord, you would prepare the way for our gospel conversations Lord, that we would see that we must sow and we must water, but that it is you who brings the gospel fruit and that we would trust in that. Lord, we love you. And oh God, we need you. We bless you. In Jesus' name, amen.